scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, Man Bites Media, John Avalon, editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, and Mark McKinnon, co-creator, co-producer, executive producer, and co-host of The Circus is with us. Murmur is a modern school of film show. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Happy to have you here. My name is Robert Malazzo with you for the next hour. I am the founder and director of the Modern School of Film. Murmur is a Modern School of Film show. Uh, We have a website for Murmur, murmurradio.com. We have social handles, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at MSF Murmur, at MSF Murmur. And we also have an email murmurradio at gmail.com drop us a line drop us a note let us know you're listening comments questions we'd love to read them on the air we have tons 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 to get to today so let's just jump right in there are some weeks uh as a human being when you can literally feel the earth move i i know when i was a kid i I occasionally would stare up at the clouds and uh, see the clouds move and i thought uh, wow, the the world spins. Well, of course, years later, I realized, or weeks later, or maybe just realized that clouds move, um, and you can't perceive the movements of the world, and we have to perceive them other ways, and one way is through politics and the media, and that's kind of where we're going to start today with this uh, surreal week. Uh, I was at a, a gas station getting gas the other day, and uh, sometimes at the gas kiosks, they have little TV monitors where you can see a little swath of news like NBC News or uh, usually NBC. They're usually very commercial-esque uh, s- snippets of news. And um, I, I was getting gas, and I saw on the news that there was a, a tornado in Rome. And which was a kind of interesting, fascinating, devastating sight, unless you're watching the Fellini film. And uh, it it caught my eye and it just sort of broke me out of this trance of the news of the election cycle we're in. Or, yeah, I think we're still in it. <laughs> it's like we're detoxing. We have a new president, president-elect. We'll get to all that. Uh, but it made me realize seeing this newscast on a gas station pump, how thick and and aggressive 
and I don't mean that in a in a in a um, editorial way, a more clinical way. Aggressive the media ha- has become, Om- omnipresent, ubiquitous. I watch the news, and I I may watch it for a slightly different reason. Uh, I don't go to the movies to get the news. I tell my students that all the time, but I watch the news sort of to look at or to study or to deepen my my understanding of how propaganda works. And again, I use the word propaganda not as a kind of pejorative, but as a clinical, like a scalpel, a tool, propaganda. Because film, the history of film is the history of propaganda in a sense. And and if you want to look at, take a hard line into that, you can look at, uh, no, look no further than Germany and Italy, World War II. Fellini helped, uh, sorry, Fellini, Mussolini helped craft the film industry and built Cinecittà, which is, one of the great, probably the still the great uh, film studio in Rome. And Hitler uh, was a huge Fritz Lang fan and wanted to hire him to create films for the Reich. And Lang did not, he, joined, he did not join. And actually Fritz Lang and his wife were separated because his wife was a sympathizer of the Reich and Fritz was not. So so propaganda and mind control and, and messages in media are really interesting. I think we're kind of in this time now where it is really hard to separate uh, objective and subjective more than ever. And, and this news cycle, this political news cycle, crystallized that. Uh, I, I'm interested in watching the news, and I was one of the things that drew me to the election, other than the fact that I wanted to see who our president uh, would be was how are messages disseminated and and how are uh, interests um, satisfied in the sense of how do uh, news organizations operate and what is what what are what do these terms mean what does the word media mean media was under attack it's hard to tell if media was under attack in this election cycle or were, were the attackers or the attackees. But I know the word media in a film context is actually kind of they're joining forces or one is actually supplanting the other. A lot of film studies programs are becoming media studies programs. Um, if you Google or search media studies programs, you'll see programs where you learn film history and film aesthetics and film production. I don't know if it's a sexier title, but I think in terms of an education, it feels more substantive to study media than film. That may be just a, a kind of parental view. Uh, but I know the word film has always had a relationship to media. Media derivative of the Latin medium. And media is a, is a plural. It's, it's, it's the plural of medium medium being the sort of conduit, but along the way to conduitry, uh, opinions tend to um, show their faces and heads. Uh, I watch a lot of TV media. I, I read a lot less print media, again, because it's hard to know where to start and stop. And, you know, studying media and studying current events is so autodidactic. And that's another problem with media. What do we expect from the media? Do we expect an objective truth? Do we expect their truth? I think we have to expect their truth. You know, it's, it's funny. The equivalency is when you watch a documentary. You, most often you assume that something that is made as documentary is real simply because it seems real. It seems real. 
But cameras don't turn themselves on or and off. Editors edit. Camera operators decide what to film. Uh, media is 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 by nature filtration, filtered through producers and writers, human beings. I hope that never changes. So I hope we we're careful with this idea of burning the media in effigy. Uh, it's a complicated issue. I think it's more common sense based than one would think. The unfortunate thing is people tend to get news in passive ways. They tend to wait for news to come to them rather than them doing their own recognizance and their own information and their own cross-referencing. That's how I learn about the news. I form my own opinion based on material and matter. It's not always that simple. But I think one thing this election has proven amongst everything is uh, how we are heard and what we hear is authored by someone else. Nothing is, is a pure sound wave anymore. And uh, 40 years ago, there was a great film that I think represented this translation of populist pain into political decision-making and the media was uh, being the midwife. Remember this one? I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out to? You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. We're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore.
to take this anymore. Who are you talking to, Herb? CGG Atlanta. Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? But first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. They're yelling in Baton Rouge. God damn it. Get up, get up, get up out of your Son of a bitch! We struck the mother low. Stick your head out of the window, open it, and stick your head out and keep yelling and yell. I'm as mad as hell. I'm not going to take this anymore. Just get up from your chairs right now. Go to Where the window. Where are you going? Everybody I want to see if anybody's yelling. Open it and stick your head out and yell and keep yelling. I'm as mad as hell. I'm not going to take this anymore. show together about a month ago when I uh, invited today's guests. The original theme was uh, uncommon people who had the good sense to stay away from the music business after entering the music business. Um, that was the theme. And we, we, we invited two guests on to explore that theme with us. But a funny thing happened. Uh, we elected, we seem to have elected a new president. So, um, who seemed to take aim at the media. So we thought we need to reconfigure and reconfigure and we have two really smart guests to do it. Um, let's meet them. Uh, guest one and two appearing simultaneously. Uh, our first guest is uh, the award-winning editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast. He's a CNN contributor. He's an author, a columnist. Um, he has both uh, Rudy Giuliani and Margaret Hoover on speed dial. Uh, John Avalon, 
uh, is with us, uh, our other guest uh, with John is an award-winning uh, producer, strategist, advisor, columnist, co-host, co-executive producer of the incredible Showtime show, The Circus, advisor to presidents, maker of kings, um, and more impressively, he actually has Bono on speed dial. Please welcome to the show, uh, John Avalon and Mark McKinnon. Hey guys, uh, welcome to Murmur. Uh, thanks for being here. Hey, beer. with you. Hey, uh, anything new this week? Um, what, what, are you guys, <laughs> what are you guys up to? Like I said, not much to talk about, is there? <laughs> you know, real, real quiet week in the Republic. Nothing to see here. <laughs> yeah, I think we just you know do sound collages for an hour, uh, or play. I'll play classical gas. The the forty, <laughs> the, for, the, the forty minute version. I actually remember classical gas. <laughs> uh, Mark, you're are you still living out of a suitcase in a hotel room in New York, or uh, and did you? And I guess the question for both of you: Did either of you get to Washington much this week? Uh, I, got, I was in Washington yesterday, and we shot the very last scene of the circus at the White House when Trump and Obama met. So that's kind of the last scene that Showtime, given all that happened, is giving us extended our usual half hour to an hour. Thank God, because you know, it could be easily a six-hour show. But uh, yeah, I'm living. In a, I, I've been living in a hotel for since Labor Day in New York, and uh, I'll finish editing the last show. Uh, this weekend and no later Sunday night, and then I'm out of here. John, did you get to DC uh, this week, or you, you, were you smart and just kept uh, binoculars around your neck? <laughs> no, I mean you know the, the, the Daily Beast is based out of New York, so um, I, I've been I've been uh, parked here. You know, did a uh, basically two day marathon between Election Day and the Wednesday, with I think I caught 47 minutes of sleep somewhere in there, and. and Basically, was at the Beast uh, and at CNN with a uh, you know stop off at home for a shower and a, and a, a nap, but that was about it. So I've I've been here at Beast HQ, kind of um, leading the team through this uh, this unprecedented uh, election. Now, I got to say, McKinnon gets props for picking the circus. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, you know, it was always a bummer. That, John, when, no. the, the amazing thing about that is, two years ago when we you know when we signed up to do the show, someone suggested the title of the circus, and our initial response was, oh, no, no, that's that's a little over the top. I'm not sure that'll work. Well, you know what? You know, it's actually, Mark, you know, it's interesting. Frank Luntz did his uh, 60 Minutes um, uh, little uh, straw poll with people in the room, and he asked them all, this was before the election, and he asked them all to to invoke one word for this whole cycle, and someone said circus, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, that, exactly, and we've not only heard that from voters, we heard it from the candidates, too, and the really funny thing is, like, a couple of weeks ago, Ringling Brothers did a press release saying, <laughs> we want our name back. <laughs> uh, they may never but, get know, it back. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it really is, I mean, Mark's done an, an incredible job with, with a lot of great material. It, you know, the, for the, in, in in, in the writing journalism side, kind of the, the, the most iconic, beloved campaign book um, is probably Richard Ben Kramer, What It Takes. And, and the tragedy on that one for me is that he chose to cover the 88 campaign, <laughs> uh, which really was, I mean, with, with a couple of, of exceptions, was sort of, you know, drama-free. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, Mark certainly hit the cycle right. This is going to be something that lives on for a long time. And, you know, and, uh, John just mentioned yeah. that book, and and for for those of us who are uh, in you know the, are deeply involved in politics, and a lot of people who aren't, that is absolutely the top of everybody's list yeah. as the favorite p- political book of all time. You know, along with a couple other classics, but that's always top three for sure. And uh, a couple episodes ago, John, I don't know if you got to catch it, but we did kind of a special on Joe Biden, and we started off the whole episode by talking about what it takes. And Imagine. by the way, his daughter Ruby. Crane, 
frame or uh, was out on the campaign trail. Uh, I mean, sure. You, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking this week about you guys, uh, the the group, the, you know, the media and whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll parse those terms and, and define them. I was thinking about, you know, the, one of my favorite moments of Bill Parcells uh, rallying the Giants was going over to the sideline saying, hey, this is why you lift all those weights. You know, this is <laughs> this is where it kind of pays off. Do you, do you guys reference that in the sense of, you know, you guys have been in this these this this kind of week where the rubber is like not only hitting the road it's like murdering the road um do you think do you rely on the core of what you know in the sense of is there a structure like a almost like a journalistic structure you apply does do you get in touch with that during weeks like this or is that overly poetic to to suggest well the thing i think the thing that uh, certainly this week reminded me of is that you you have to ignore the noise and, and search for the signal and and what I mean by that is, you know, I even became, I, I, like a lot of others, just sort of thought, you know, Clinton's got the ground game, you know, this, it's close, and a close election, that's going to pay off. When I've, I've been preaching all my life as the media guy that passion counts more than anything, that message counts more than anything. And I said, well, from the very first rally I went to it, to Trump in Arizona back in December, I went to that and it blew my mind because I, it was it was clear that there was something completely different happening here, in the sense that these you know these it was packed and it was like the middle of the day people left lunch, and they went wild and that you know at the end of the day I always say you know you can have all the organization in the world and it doesn't mean anything unless you've got passion and a message and a messenger, and that's what Donald Trump did like him or loathe him that's what he did. John, did this week bring back bring you back to any kind of core? Uh, like a personal strategic core, or something you buoy your work to. Does this did this well, I do mean, that? You know, I, I think from from a from a journalist point of view, um, one of the things about elections are that you know we've been working on this for you know what more than eighteen months uh, as a team. So the team develops a lot of muscle memory, um, and and our job is you know editor in chief and and the rest of the senior team is to direct it, help them separate the signal from the noise. Uh, as Mark said, um, you know, uh, but the the other dirty little secret is that there's a high level of exhaustion. They're sort of falling across the finish line, and and I've often found that that can diminish coverage at the very end. Particularly, we spend so much time reading polls before elections, and it's always been a pet peeve of mine that there's not nearly enough energy put into analyzing what actually happened. Uh, from a data standpoint, from a follow-through standpoint, you know, we do all these ephemeral polls, but then we don't do nearly enough with the exit polls and the analysis. So we're we're trying to correct for that. But there was also the the dawning realization that um, you know we've been running ultra marathons for a while, and we thought the final one was you know Tuesday night, and uh, that this is gonna this is gonna keep going. That um, that that a, a Trump administration. Uh, represents a, a, I believe, frankly, just a, a challenge to a free press and to our democracy in a way that we need to refine and rededicate ourselves to the core responsibility, which is, you know, informing people and speaking truth to power and, and without fear or favor. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do at the Daily Beast. We're, we're talking with John Avalon and Mark McKinnon, uh, Modern School Film Murmur. Let's start there a little bit, guys. Rather than look at the thin ice, uh, let's look at the rink a little bit. Um, and, and I want to start because I think this word you know, my tradition is a film tradition, but this word is actually replacing the word film. A lot of film studies programs are becoming media studies. And of course, you know, the the character, one of the great characters in this whole cycle is Trump targeting the crooked media. So let's put that in place for, out of place for a moment. Define the word, define the word media. 
guys, and this could be as down and dirty as basic as you want, but this drives this drives people crazier than they think they know. Define that word media. Mark, you want to go first? John, John, you take a shot. You're the, you're the, <laughs> I think you just defined it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the the word media is is a, a a grab bag. It's an umbrella term. It's it's inexact, and so people will use it in ways that. Um, you know they're 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 cherry picking their definition and projecting it. I think basically at the end of the day, medium media is about a, a medium of uh, storytelling, a medium of nonfiction storytelling. It's people whose business is translating our times um, in into stories, and it's they can be written, they can be visual, um, but but that is a, a business as well as a constitutionally protected public good. You know, we, I always like to point out the Constitution doesn't mention political parties, but it does mention journalists. Um, but I think when a lot of people mean it pejoratively, they're talking about journalists. Um, and, and the frustrations with media kind of run 360. Uh, you know, there are people who are very concerned about the rise of partisan media. I certainly am one of them. I think it's led to the polarization we're seeing today. At the same time, of course, that you know, people on the right are convinced that the, the polarization of the partisan media problem is on the left, and people on the left think the problem is on the right. Uh, I think buying into a myth of moral equivalence there is dangerous. Um, you know, we've got asymmetric polarization in lots of different ways, but um, but but I, I think you know the, the media is people who engage in you know nonfiction storytelling, uh, and it's a big business as well as a, a public good. John. I don't think I can do any better than that. I was going to say, did you have enough time? That's a that's a good thinking time. I mean, it's a, but, but, it. It was it was the crucial seconds McKinnon gave me to kind of formulate I, my thought. I think John ran to the I library. Yield, <laughs> I yield the floor. I yield the floor to Avalon. <laughs> What's your? I guess if we can frame it in this way, John, that it's it it has taken a beating. You know, to say you're part of the media, obviously this man literally po- would point at the media, uh, literally point his finger. So what is it? What is he pointing at? Are you part of the media? What do you make of it? Just by default almost. I mean, you know, sure. Again, I think media is a broad term. It's not uh, as exact as it should be. But but abs- sure. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. We run a digital news organization, make it a little bit more specific. I think the thing about Donald Trump running against the media is is probably uh, twofold. Um, first of all, you know, Donald Trump has a uh, fascinating and uh, twisted relationship with the media. He simultaneously craves it. He craves attention uh, much more than, um, you know, let's assume that there's no normal person in politics and most successful politicians have a dose of the sociopath in them. But Donald Trump craves media attention, and that has been the secret to his business success. He's basically a marketing guy. He is a hype man, much more than he's involved in real estate uh, or politics, and that has served him well. He believes that, um, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Um, and, and, and But at the same time, while he craves media attention and earned media by saying outrageous things was basically his advertising budget during the primaries, um, and to that extent, he zeroed in on the Achilles heel of, I think, uh, news media today, which is that we don't have a liberal or conservative bias as much as a conflict bias. And so he became a conflict machine and provided good entertainment, which gave him a lot of free airtime. But he viciously resents anyone in journal, any journalist trying to hold him accountable. Um, and that, of course, is where the principled conflict uh, comes from, that he uh, will try to distract and deflect from coverage of any of his uh, voluminous mistakes or lies, 
um, by blaming the media. And his supporters will buy into it because there has been a lot of frustration with media, ranging from the rise of partisan media to, I think, the de facto uh, Democratic slant a, a lot of major media had before fragmentation, especially, uh, to a gap of cultural experience between urban and rural. Um, and the fact that a lot of journalists are sort of, um, you know, when, when, the, when the journalists come to town and satire, you know, you, you were playing an excerpt from Newswork, uh, Network earlier, um, you know, some journalists uh, are, are simply in the sensational business, and they come to town uh, and, and, and to, to stir up uh, you know, emotions make scapegoats out of people, and then there's no place for other for people to come to get their reputations back. I get their frustration with that, but there's something incredibly sinister about a presidential candidate nominee and now president-elect who has demonized the media as part of his strategy, not only personally but explicitly through surrogates. That sets up a really significant conflict that's going to play out over the next four years, having to do with the fourth estate and separation of powers and our obligation to inform and hold people to account. If we print press releases, we are not doing our job. That is not what the founders imagined. That is not how free society works. And, um, and, 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 and there are all sorts of classical themes, not to elevate it too much, because at the end of this is a, is a venal desire for attention, right. um, but, but real struggle for, for, uh, for power and demagoguery, and a desire uh, to deflect um, critical attention by by um, dismissing the source, even if it's true. You know, well, it was interesting, uh, and and obviously on uh, right on. I you know the day after, uh, I think it was Wednesday. John, you had authored that piece on the Beast, uh, how you, the Daily Beast will stand up to President Trump, which I thought and uh, I thought that was interesting, and I uh, that it came from your voice and your fingers. I thought was important. Uh, it's, but it reminded me of something else, Mark. I want to get your thought on because you're uh, one of your partners in crime, um, Mark Halperin, said uh, that the media performs their job about as poorly as any group of elites in society. And he was counting himself in that sense. Like, I think he was being very uh, self-aware. But it is, a, it is a strange thing because sometimes the media criticizes the media. Uh, but, but what do you think about that, Mark? Do you think the media, what do you think about Mark's quote, Mark, that the media oftentimes handles things poorly? I mean, it's a kind of no-win though, right? It's kind of a no, the media is almost in a no-win situation. Or is that too simplistic? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think there's there's so much that we're going to be talking about and analyzing yeah. uh, for years about this election, not just Donald Trump, but the media. As it has been just as fascinating uh, a, a subject in this election as Trump has been, and uh, and the media critique of the media itself. I, you know, one of the things that was kind of fascinating last week was that. Uh, you know, when everybody went into the tank and just said it's done and it's over, Halpern was one of the almost one of the only people in the media who said, "Well, you know, I, I think there's actually still a there's still a path for Trump to win." And he got viciously attacked mm. by his colleagues for even suggesting that there were that he was in the that he was in the tank for Trump because he was suggesting that there was even a pathway. Uh, so that kind of internecine sort of attacking of media, attacking media, you know, was an interesting sort of. You know, just piece of of so much that's happened. Let me, if I, if I can, can I? Do you mind if I just talk about story for a second? Oh, because um, you mentioned that word before, related. and that Pavlovian like thing. Like, I think that's an important thing. So obsess away. Well, you, you 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 caught my attention with 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 the idea of story because it's so it's so relative to everything you do, uh, and that the and, and that John does, and 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 I've been I've made the case to candidates for years 
uh, I've talked to John about this, we've talked about it, that great campaigns tell a story. You know, people usually think about storytelling in terms of film or books or, or sort of different cultural manifestations, but it's just as true, maybe more true, in campaigns. Campaigns that win tell a story. It's not just a bunch of disconnected information and sort of, you know, message points and, and uh, press releases and position papers. It's got to connect the dots up in a way that becomes a compelling narrative structure for people, and people who do that win, people who don't lose. And think about this campaign. So when we talk to candidates about this idea of storytelling, they're, you know, they usually say, what do you mean? I don't, and so we say, run it through this filter. Establish a threat or an opportunity. Identify a victim of that threat or denied opportunity. Establish a villain who's imposing the threat or denying the opportunity. Establish a solution. Reveal the hero. And the, so you think about that filter in this campaign, it's not even close. I mean, whether you like them or loathe them, I think you have to objectively agree that Trump told the better story. He had the clearest narrative architecture. He established a threat, immigrants. He identified an opportunity, make America great again. He identified victims, Americans who've lost their jobs and experienced a declining standard of living. He identified villains, Mexico and China, proposed solutions, build a wall, revealed the hero, Trump. I mean, that's about as clear as you get. That's a profound point Marx makes, and, and, um, and I think especially within the lens of this election. I, I, I would just say a, a, a couple things. I mean, media criticism is good, right? It's one of the ways, you know, who will watch The Watchmen? Um, you know, in normal times in our democracy, you know, that's a question, uh, you know, for, for journalists, um, uh, because our job is to, is to uh, keep, you know, hold the people in power to account. But I think that's where, you know, our, our prognostication, I mean, there is an enormous amount of uh, not just soul-searching, but I think existential um, <laughs> questions surrounding both the polling industry and people who do those predictive maps. Because if you do a predictive map as an expert and you're predicting an 85%, let's say, likelihood that Hillary Clinton wins that fluctuates by a half dozen points over the course of a race, and then at 6 o'clock at night on Election Day it flips, either you're really terrible at your job or you've been fooling everybody because it's a useless product you've been selling. Um, now, polls have noise in them, and we know that, which is why I think you know a poll of polls becomes the most certain um, thing to hold on to. Uh, and, and I think there was a lot, including on the Clinton campaign, an assumption that states that uh, had never, that, that hadn't voted Republican since 84 that are constantly flirted with uh, would 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 you know you you learn from history and that pattern would reassert it is good to have people questioning that assumption but at the end of the day you know the role of journalists is not to be in the predictive business and to the extent that it is it's it's because we're looking at all the data that we have such as it is and assuming that in aggregate it's true right because remember the last cycle we had a whole conversation about unskewed polls um, and it really was just about about wishful thinking. At the end of the day, this race was decided by uh, you know 109,000 voters in three states: you know Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. States that Hillary Clinton really shouldn't have lost with her money and organization advantage. And I think that's a fascinating story itself. Um, and I think the impact of, of the story and, uh, that, that Donald Trump created helped motivate people from the heart. And Democrats didn't have adequate turnout. She lost around 6 million votes, which is about enthusiasm and inspiration. But, but it's not our job 
per se to be in the prediction business. It's our job to inform people and to hold power to account. Well, MSNBC is doing it right, guys. They have someone named Crystal Ball. Uh, She uh, was a co-host of the show The Cycle. I don't know if you've ever seen her. She's a Democratic strategist. So I think... If every network had someone named Crystal Ball, that would that would restore a lot of. <laughs> oh, pure, purely, purely on yeah, that's right. To actually, just delineate uh, yeah the, the the prognostication to us. exactly the resident <laughs> soothsayer. Just have Shakespeare come in. Uh, we're talking with John Avalon and Mark McKenna. I want to talk about something that was curious to me, especially near the end. Uh, you know, seeing a lot of more of Michael Moore on TV, and and even Chuck Todd talked about this kind of anecdotal evidence. Uh, this there seemed to be a comeback for the anecdotal evidence of a candidacy. You know, I, I see a lot of times on panel shows, the the network show, the the cable shows, where someone cites anecdotal evidence. Oh, you don't see what I'm seeing. You don't see the lawn signs, the lawn signs, and they're often shot down. But did this? Does this? Did this um, election? Is it a mandate at all on the anecdotal? You know, Mark, you talk about story. Well, hum- human beings have a story too, you know, and I think Trump. Well, they do. I, and yeah. I think that's a good point, and and uh, I, I would reinforce that just by saying a couple things. One is that just because of the nature of the media business these days, most media outlets don't have the budgets that they used to to send out reporters beyond their sort of you know uh, established bureaus. So. Uh, I, I think it's the case, John, you may correct me, that not as many reporters are sort of out there like they used to be going to, you know, small counties in Iowa or Colorado or Arizona or wherever. But uh, I, I'd say, A, that, 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 that I think that's part of it, um, that maybe also a, a much younger crop of journalists, John, maybe, and again, I kind of defer to John on this, who who are sort of used to have been brought up in the data age where they're overly reliant on data as opposed to anecdote. And again, right, right. I'll just go back to the point I said earlier. Um, when I went to that first Donald Trump rally and the last rally, I, you know, I, every time I went to one, I just I had the distinct, <laughs> the dis, very distinct feeling that something different was happening. And I said to anybody, I said, have to go to a rally to appreciate this because mm. otherwise you just don't get it. Well, I think that's what Trump was saying, and I think yeah. inherently him saying it queered the message. But I think when you say it, or when John says it, there is a power to it. You know, if if yeah. a jur- but but I think do journalists have a problem, or do they? Is it kryptonite? Is like anecdotal hearsay kind of? Is that crypt? I mean, Obama used it. Obama there was a there was a movement with Obama. Uh, but, but I think I think the key thing is right. It's it's about both, right? Yeah, you want right, to use your right, heart and your head, right? right. You want to balance realism and ideal. You know, you know, whatever formulation you want to use. Um, the anecdotal is awfully important, right? That's why there's for reporters, there's no substitute for being on the ground, um, and 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 that's a truism. You get better stories, and what are stories that reporters pick up? Well, they're often their experience that are are storified, and those are inherently anecdotal. Um, they just, um, you know, but they're one person's truth. And the question is how um, illustrative is of, of a larger truth. So that's why you balance it against data. You know, every campaign, and, and Mark will know this, you know, losing candidates always say almost axiomatically, well, that we've got great crowds the last couple of days. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, right. and, and that's just, that, that's, that's almost like a, a metaphor for, you know, we're losing, but we're living in a bubble. Um, and, and, you know, this is, 
is not quite the same thing as as one of those classic, um, you know, the Pauline Kael line about you know uh, you know when when Nixon won forty nine states, you know everyone I know voted for McGovern. Um, <laughs> you know, this is not a forty nine state win. This is basically Donald Trump uh, threading the needle. And 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 Hillary Clinton let us forget. I think we've come a little bit inured to this because the two thousand race, but she won the popular vote. Yeah. Now yeah. she was spent much more money, had a big organization, uh, lost states she shouldn't have lost, and, and those are all. Uh, major factors, but but you know, I think a lot of young journalists have a certain um, healthy skepticism, if not contempt, for the. Let me tell you what my cab driver told me style of journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's your truth, it's the cab driver's truth, but it's not necessarily illustrative of any other truth. So you want to balance it with data. Now, if the data is fundamentally wrong, um, that's a, a huge problem for everybody. Well, it seemed like that was never the story this cycle, but it seems to be the truth. that we're t- If we were talking about Trump, that there, the data was one thing and the anecdotal was different. You know, was there ever a responsibility to say, hey, let this is the story, the disconnect? But it seemed like people were so excited, you know, on the left with the Clinton da- data. So who... Who who rings that middle bell? Because the middle bell doesn't sell, right? If it bleeds, it leads, and all that. So it's it's weird to talk about. Like we can get on a podcast for an hour and talk about the middle, but the middle doesn't drive up ratings, right? Fairness. Well, Mark and I would contest that with you, but that's for another time. Fair, 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 uh, fair enough. I, I want to talk um, just one other thing. I want to talk about this idea of politics and media a little bit more. More. I was use the word clinically, but incestuously. It's funny. Ben Bradley. Um, used to talk about the rules of journalism and he said the first rule of journalism is don't go on television and this the, se- <laughs> the, the second rule of journalism yeah, exactly yeah. the second rule of journalism is don't gloat so we're kind of through the looking glass on dear ben's rules but uh, what is uh, the the question i have that i think a lot of people i talk to who aren't in the media wonders how do i know if i'm watching something how how do I trust it? Like how do I? You know, Stephanopoulos said this week that we're all we've all become editors in a way, which I thought was a really interesting comment. How do what did pe- he mean by that? I think he meant we have to take in as much information as possible from both sides and decide what what huh. we find. Maybe it's the shell game. Maybe it's the process of elimination. Is the common truth? So how does one watch news and discern what? is the truth and what is not. I mean, this is a kind of cliche, fundamental thing, but in this state now where Ben Bradley's rules are destroyed, how do you, well, go, how, what's the guidance? I would say, I'd say that maybe one positive outcome of this election would be that people will be more skeptical and more discerning about what they're hearing. You know, that they'll look to, these things sound contradictory, but maybe to more more sources and at the same time more reliable sources mm-hmm. uh, so that they're not just sort of going to their corners, picking out their sort of, you know, exercising in what we call confirmation bias by just finding information that reinforces what they believe. Because I think that's what happened this time. So so hope maybe one impact of this will be that people will seek out more and reliable information. Mm-hmm. But there, there, yeah, but you certainly. But there, there's a there's a deeper challenge here, right? That I think media is part of, and and um, and, and and certainly you know the confluence of media and politics. My one of my favorite quotes of all time is Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He said, "Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts." <laughs> and the rise of partisan media has a lot to answer for in terms of the confirmation bias, in terms of uh, the self selection, in terms of the. Um, 
you know, sort of incivility on social media mobs that we're seeing right now. People, our ability to reason together has been undercut by the fact that people are coming to civic debates armed with their own facts, um, uh, which are are highly subjective and 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 uh, and they the idea that I think undergirds democracy, which is that we have to um, have an assumption of goodwill among our fellow citizens, has been steadily chipped away at by people pursuing a business model uh, of partisan media. They become professional polarizers, and in a fragmented environment, they're trying to keep people addicted. They're trying to keep their ratings up by keeping people addicted to uh, anxiety and anger and hate at the other, which is the classic demagogue's tool. At the Daily Beast, our approach, um, you know, what we believe is that our job is to be nonpartisan but not neutral. Now, what does that mean? Uh, that means that we're going to have columnists who run from liberal to libertarian. Uh, that means that we're not going to shill predictably for one party and we're going to hit people on both sides when they deserve it. The, the, the big problem with people often trying to walk the middle path in media is you fall into, on the one hand, on the other, moral relativism, where you have, you know, here's a fact, here's someone spinning their own alternative reality, you decide. And it's our job to insist on a fact-based debate. And that's why I don't regret for one second the way we covered Donald Trump, mm-hmm. which, was, which was we were early, uh, unapologetic, principled critics. Um, uh, of of his divisive and demagogic campaign style, which is a departure from our best traditions, and and there is nothing to apologize in that for. If it was purely done from partisan reasons, if it was uh, you know we were simply shilling you know for, for the other team or or kind of doing our own cartoon version of reality that was unhinged, sure. But that's the job of media is to really insist on a fact based debate, and the need for reality checks and fact checks is going to be more because the reality is. All politicians lie, but this candidate has lied with unusual enthusiasm and regularity, and that's now in the Oval Office. So, so guys, who who are your all star teams then? You know, I I was watching some of the coverage Tuesday night. I was watching John King, and you know, the way he the, the work he does on that board. That sound kind of I thought it was fascinating. I thought he was actually an incredible conduit for information. You know, I, I know you're you're swimming this pool, and you may not want to name names, but who who do you, who would you got who who do you think executes this balance really well um, in the in the popular arena of news media? You're talking TV news? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk TV, and we could do print as well. But let's start with TV guys. Who, who's who? Are like a couple of names on your all star team. Who you know? Who do we trust? <laughs> I'd have heard of John right. on this. <laughs> no, no, no! I just kicked the ball to you. First. <laughs> Um, I'll, take, I'll go print first. Here's, yeah. here's my here's my view on print. I think Dan Baltz is, is we call him the dean of the, of at least the Washington Post, but maybe the dean of the entire political press corps. I, I, I think so highly of him that I, I think that there should be, somebody should fund a Dan Baltz boot camp for all incoming political journalists. They should just have to go spend a month. Uh, you know, at the foot of Dan Baltz and, and watch and learn from everything he does because he's just the best of the old school, but but still practicing, you know, in, in a way that he's, you know, he's not a Luddite, uh, but but his perspective and his, and his, uh, his, his uh, uh, good judgment, I think, on, you know, and he, and he still does a lot, of, by the way. I mean, he, he's the kind of guy that goes back and does kind of the old anecdotal stories and, and looks at those kind of things that those old boys on the bus used to do. So he's the best of the old school and incorporates, uh, you know, the best of the new school as well, I think. Well, let's do one for one. So, Mark, let's say that's your print guy. Who would you say on TV is the person you, you would say this this person gets it right? Like the, they, they get the both sides. They can deliver something with equilibrium attached to it. 
Oh, gosh. You know, I mean... Uh, I, I mean, it, I'm not saying it's... this. The suggestion isn't this isn't the only person, but someone that you think, someone navigating the ter- the sea of media information. Mm-hmm. Who do you dig on TV? Who do you... When you want to get the lowdown and like what's going on, who do you who do you go towards? Well, I, I mean, I, I kind of like uh, like uh, it sort of goes to just kind of the X's and O's, like Steve Kornacki. I mean, I, I love right. the map guys. You know, just kind of go to the data and, and not a lot of editorial stuff. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of this is you know just lays out kind of facts in a fact way and lets you make your own decision. So, uh, you know, put me down as a Kornacki map man. <laughs> John, what about you? Print, print, and and uh, TV. You know, I mean, you know, print, um, you know, I think there are people who had better cycles and worse cycles, but Maggie Haberman is very well sourced on, on both sides. And, um, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I find her stuff always uh, compulsively readable. Um, you know, certainly I'm very proud of the team we have here at the Daily Beast. I mean, our political team, Olivia Newsy, Betsy Woodruff, Jackie Kucinich, um, all, you know, had a, had a really strong cycle. Um, hey, can I jump TV? in and interrupt for just a second on that? Sure. Uh, I just want to I just want to echo what John said about Maggie. She she is, uh, you know, among the best of the brightest. And, and I just and I just wanted to mention the story that she did with her colleagues, uh, uh, at the time, so it was, I think, four people on the byline. Uh, I, I, I probably misstated if I took a guess, but it was Barbara and a couple others. But um, the story that they did about kind of the inner workings of the Trump campaign over the, last, over the last month or so was incredible work and so fascinating that they got the level of detail from an operation that, you know, I mean, is is pretty t- pretty buttoned up in terms of you know getting that kind of information out and especially when they hate the new york times so i'm just it's you know someday on a dark bench i want to get maggie out and say how did you guys possibly do this <laughs> yeah incredible. yeah and John- jonathan martin her colleague also had a really good cycle we're just yeah. talking straight reporters i i think you know um while we're talking the times i think you know pete wainer and david brooks have been people who come from the center right who've been eloquent and yeah two of our favorites for sure i mean it's a republican yeah. progressive republican those guys give voice like no other do john is there someone yeah. on the tv side that you yeah think, you know look yeah. I, I think i think jake tapper um had a had a very uh, good cycle did. just tough fair questions uh i think john dixon's doing a very good job on faith the nation i think um Brian Stuffler's uh, uh, reliable sources really hit its stride in terms of, of saying that, you know, we can't just, uh, we, we need to take stands and insist on a fact-based debate more. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy around Morning Joe, but I think the, the personalities around that table all have a, have a, have a, a dynamic that makes for a pretty balanced, insightful conversation often. And, and I think Chris Cuomo had a lot of really good interviews, too. Uh, I was thinking, in, as we wrap up a little bit here, uh, just talking to John Avalon and Mark McKinnon, um, one of my favorite uh, Robert Altman uh, quotes, Altman, uh, after Nashville came out, uh, the uh, I guess a reporter from the Washington Post called him, and at the end of Nashville, spoiler alert, uh, there's an assassination of a singer. There's a killing. And the Washington Post reporter asked Bob Altman, uh, do you feel responsible for this, the killing? And he said, uh, what do you mean? And the, the reporter said, well, in your film Nashville, there's an assassination of a celebrity. And this was right after Lennon was killed. And Bob Altman said, um, no, I don't feel bad about it uh, or responsible. And then he said, do you feel responsible for not heeding my warning? So I guess the question is, you know, if, as we look at this push-pull between media and life, I mean, 
what's the reverse? Can the media, like, can the media cause something to happen? You know, can, can the media ca- cause a reality? You know, we're talking a lot about reflecting reality. Can it cause a reality? I mean, that's pretty existential. I mean, I, I, Mark probably has more developed thoughts than I do, but I just say, you know, let, let's. I think what you're really asking about is did the media give too much coverage to Trump early on, right? Yeah, I was that's, connecting it to film, but I wasn't trying to be so, quote unquote, judgmental. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say that you're spanking. I mean, look, I would much rather talk about Rod, Rod, <laughs> Robert Altman. No, we haven't even had the conversation. Next time, we're going to talk about music and both of your efforts in the business because I didn't really want to embarrass you. And, 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 and honestly, I mean, freaking let. Leonard Cohen, Captain of the Week. I mean, go listen to the future if you want a dystopian, you know, political vision, and because we're about to live through it. In any case, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, all props to Leonard Cohen. Look, I, I think th- there is a responsibility to to news media. Um, it does not uh, create reality; it reflects reality. But there are choices that are made, and it is a human business. These are human, you know, human beings that are flawed, trying to hold themselves to a higher standard. Um, but when, 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 when Donald Trump, as a primary candidate, um, is getting, uh, you know, the podium at his next rally coverage, uh, waiting for him to arrive, or the landing of Trump Force One at a rally in a primary, because we're waiting for him to say the next outrageous thing, he has successfully gamed the media. And then the other primary candidates took cues and realized the only way they could get attention was not to be responsible. Uh, say something responsible because that was boring, right. was to say something equally outrageous. So the only news national attention that Mike Huckabee got is when all of a sudden he started yammering on about North Korea comparisons um, because that was equally outrageous. That creates a situation where we you know, define deviancy down. We sort of amuse ourselves to death. We treat politics like sports, like entertainment, not as actually a, civic, a real civic business that we all have to take seriously and we treated it like a reality show and we got a reality show president congratulations mark (laughs) (laughs) you guys are tough acts to follow of each other you know you're you're both like your brains are too big for one another i love the guy (laughs) mark can can it can it you know can a dog bite man you know can it create a reality well first of all john's pissing on my leg but it's warm and it feels good (laughs) That's that's John for you. <laughs> um, you must be from Texas, Mark. <laughs> uh, you got it. Um, the I, I think that's that's the big question here. We'll, we'll, I don't think it'll ever be resolved, and it's a fascinating one. Uh, you know, did the media make Trump, or did you know, Trump make the media? Uh, I, I think I agree with much of what John said. At the same time, I think that given the outcome of this race and what happened, we discovered to everyone's surprise. That this guy was, you know, had a much deeper well of support in this country than anybody ever thought. He's the next president of the United States, and so, uh, you know, whatever he was doing uh, that 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 captured the attention of the media early on in this process was something that was that was hitting a nerve deep in the American psyche somewhere. Now, the you know the, the sort of the bigger question is, you know, what about that psyche? I mean, what was mm. it in the psyche right. that responded? Right, right, And that's a whole thing. We will need another few hours for that one. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think but, I mean, you can blame the media. I, I, in fact, I mean, just the opposite, maybe. You know, the, you say, the, well, the media, you know, now is in some ways exonerated for, for, for demonstrating that this guy, for whatever reason, was on to something early. And they, they, they recognized that it was something different and that something was happening, and people were responding, and therefore they covered it. 
but but I think the larger point is what's good for ratings isn't always good for the republic, and mm-hmm. that's the thing we've right. seen over and over, yeah. right? And yeah. and 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 you know, if Donald Trump hadn't been in first place in the polls, you know, or you know, he wouldn't have gotten the attention he did. So the responsibility right. is 360. You know, we vote every couple, you know, every two years or four years, but people vote with their eyeballs and their wallets every day. So you know, they need to keep that in mind in terms of people. People will give them more of what they seem to want, and that's where there's sort of a, a collective responsibility. But as a part of the larger point McKinnon was making, you know, part of the conversation around populism in American politics has always been people kind of, you know, give the people what they want. And that also connotes a, a lack of moral responsibility. If you're feeding the beast, so to speak, by indulging, you know, the, the not the better angels of our nature, but the worst, you know, divide to conquer us against them. Um, you know, that can really appeal to something that can have numbers behind it, although, again, he did not win the popular vote. But, but that's also... Uh, a, a corollary job of the media is to say, hey, this is not our best tradition. This is something different, and we can sell, you know, it, it, it may sell papers or bring eyeballs, but it's also our job to say that this way lies, history shows us that this way lies uh, a, a troubling aspect of our character that will have real consequences. To redeem Ben Bradley as if he ne- needed it, uh, rule two was don't gloat. Um, I think uh, journalism at its height is a form of patriotism, and I think you guys, by definition, are patriots. And I, I don't, you know, that can have its own string cheese on it. I'm just saying I, I think it's we need this, you know, as Rachel Maddow said a couple nights ago, she said it, it's one of those things that makes us American. It's it's a free press. So I, I, I look at her, I, I interpret her statement as uh, it's patriotism. So I want to thank you guys for doing this work. It's not easy work. And frankly, it's like a referee in basketball. When you're not noticed, you're doing it well. Uh, but I think <laughs> s- smarter viewers know who's doing it well, and I think you guys do it really well. So thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks, that. and I, I love you. being on with John. I think he's doing amazing things with the Daily Beast, and he is a real servant of democracy in the way that he pursues vigorously. You know, you know, he's, he's, he's vocal and clear about how much he believes in the country, but also the sort of things that we ought to be doing, and he's an advocate in, in the best sense of great journalism. Guys, continue, you, continue journey. We'll, we'll be watching and we'll have you back next time to talk about music and some fun stuff. Let's and do that. Yeah, no Let's shop talk. I mean, who, who, who planned this, this election around my program? God damn it. Um, <laughs> thank you, guys. Take care. We'll, we'll catch up with you again. Be well. All right. Thanks. Take it hard. Carry on regardless. So that was cool. Um, really smart guys. And I do believe in that. And I, I think f- film is a form of uh, media, you know, and uh, media does have a kind of no-win um, contract with us, but that doesn't have to be the case if we retain the truth that it is not up to the media to give us an to give us an answer. Like a teacher, you know, great teachers don't. Think, tell us what to think. They tell us how to think, or they teach us how to think. They don't teach us what to think. I know the teachers that I've had that I've loved, and I when I teach, I never forget that idea. I don't teach my students what to think. I teach them how to think, or train them how to think. The what is for them. They take this tool of, of information and education, and then they learn, you know, they acquire, they farm what their truth is.
So if anyone is relying on the media to guide them, the media itself would say, don't. It's like Charles Barkley said, we are not role models. Uh, the media are not mo- media models. <laughs> They're simply uh, a moment in time that could move you in a certain way towards your own journey. There is a really interesting parallelism between teaching and media, and I think that's why I've been really interested in diving into it today, this year, because of the cycle, but also with you on the show. We want to thank um, Mark McKinnon, John Avalon, for being here with us on Murmur, uh, murmurradio.com, murmurradio at gmail.com, modernschoolfilm.com, Twitter, Instagram, WHUPFM every Friday, and iTunes. See you soon.